south of the Mason-Dixon. This is the Week in Review at the Abbeville Institute. Here is your host, Brian McClanahan. Welcome back to the Week in Review at the Abbeville Institute. This is your host, Brian McClanahan, and this is episode 329, covering the week of October 10th through October 14th, 2022. Glad to have you back on the program. Very glad to be here. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter, like our Gab page, like our Facebook page, like our YouTube page. You can find all those social media accounts at our webpage at abbevilleinstitute.org. That's A-B-B-E-V-I-L-L-E, institute.org. Or you can just look for at Abbeville Institute. Of course, while you're at our webpage, give us an email address. We'll give you a free ebook exploring the Southern tradition. It's a great book written by 20 Abbeville Institute scholars. And of course, you get on our email list, which lets you know everything that we're doing at the Abbeville Institute. So it's not just our articles that we publish. We put, we send them to you typically four or five days a week. We also let you know about upcoming events. Uh, we let, like, for example, the webinar that we had this week on Robert E. Lee, you would have known about it if you were on the email list. Now, we also have an events page at abbevilleinstitute.org. In the middle of the page, you can click on that and see any upcoming events. We are scheduling a big event. It's going to be on almost 100% positive. We'll say 99%. The next big event we're going to do is going to be April of 2023, our 20th anniversary event. Um, it looks like the dates are going to be April 13th through 16th. It's a Thursday through a Sunday. So it's going to be a little longer, not just one day. We're going to take a few days with this because it's really a celebration of the Institute over 20 years. And we're going to look at where the South is moving forward. But this is April 2023. So um, we will have information on the events page. And so be looking for that. Um, it's going to be a fantastic event. And I think uh, if you like this podcast and you like the Institute, you're going to want to attend. So mark down your calendars now. Uh, it is going to be in Georgia, right? So, um, and I can't say 100% where yet because we don't, we haven't signed the paperwork. But re- regardless, uh, it's going to be a really grand time, and we're going to, and it's going to be in a beautiful setting. So, uh, mark your calendars, April 13th through 16th. Which, by the way, April 13th, Jefferson's birthday. A great day to kick off the conference, and we'll tie that into the conference too. But um, regardless, that's an upcoming event. That'll be on the page. And we're going to start trying to put on the page even our Zoom webinars. We're going to try to plan those out a little further so you can make some plans to be on those webinars. Uh, we're going to try to have more of these longer webinars, these you know three, four, five-speaker webinars, and not just uh, have them be an hour or a little over an hour, but to have them be four hours or five hours to try to get people more information and have more interaction with the speakers. They do cost a little more, uh, and we probably are going to see some increase. I mean, look, everything's going up. We have to do that. Everybody has to do that right now. Costs are up. So you're gonna, we're going to see a little bit more costs on these things. But regardless, that does help support the Institute and keep these things going. So this is why we have to charge for them. Um, and you know, if we had the money like uh, some of these other big think tanks, conservative think tanks, or even our enemies have, uh, we will be able to do all kinds of things free of charge, but we just don't have that kind of revenue. Now, if you want to help us with that, hey, we're getting the end of the year. You can always give us a tax-deductible donation, uh, any amount. But you know, if everybody that was on our email list, for example, which is a lot of people, was gave us just $50 I mean, a year, we would fund the Institute easily for the year. Uh, but that's, of course, not the case. A lot of people don't, I mean, they don't have the means to contribute. But even if you want to give five bucks a month, right, uh, you know, go in there, just go online, give us five bucks a month. Over a year, that's $60. That helps. That's all you can afford at one shot. 
Um, you know, so these are the kind of things that you could do. Can you spare $5 a month? And is a real question. Can you do that? Can you make a recurring donation at $5 a month? It would be, uh, again, if everybody on our list was able to do stuff like that, we would have more than enough money to do things. So if you're in, if you can hear this podcast and I'll make this appeal, all kinds of places, again, the end of the year, people are making their tax preparations for the end of the year and what they're going to donate. If they have any discretionary income to do it, uh, they're going to uh, be thinking about it. But of course it is tax deductible. So if you donate 50 bucks, right, you get $50 off your taxes. So it does help um, when you're trying to look at your taxes or, you know, if you want to donate $500, anything over $500, you have to have a receipt, which of course we give you. So you get a little more off your taxes and show it. So all kinds of great ways to support the Institute. As always, rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast. Uh, give it five stars wherever you, on Apple uh, Podcasts. Leave a text review. If you're watching on YouTube, make sure you comment for the algorithm. Share it with your friends on social media. I know there are some people that really like our stuff. And I know when these things get shared because we see the, a spike in numbers. But we've got some really good stuff on that YouTube channel, by the way. I mean, really good stuff. And we're going to talk about YouTube again today. But lectures or Abbeville U videos or podcasts, there's some really great stuff out there. So let's talk about the week. And, and, we're going to frame it around this idea of nationalism. The first piece of the week was from a 2004 lecture at our second summer school by Kerry Roberts. So uh, 2003 was the first summer school. We will have another summer school this year. I'm pretty sure of it. It won't be in South Carolina, but we will have another one. And uh, this will be the 20th anniversary summer school. So it's going to be a nice thing too. Um, but We've been doing these things now for a long time, and we've talked about a lot of the same things because we have new students all the time and new graduate students and others, and it seems like these are messages we need to hit. But this concept of nationalism is really important for understanding where we are in the South and, of course, the Southern tradition and how that fits. If you read David Hackett Fisher, okay, Albion Seed, very important book, if you read it, you'll understand that there is a cultural divide in America going back to the 17th century. And there never really was an American nation. And this gets into myth-making and other things. But the idea that there was an American nation, of course, people point to John Jay and the first couple of Federalist essays, we're one people, and then you get the Republicans regurgitating the same nonsense in the 1860s. And even before that, you have people like Hamilton and Governor Morris. Though Governor Morris would honestly say in the Philadelphia Convention, look, if all these distinctions are real, that we have a North and a South and all these things, let's just part ways now. Now, you can look at that two ways, and they didn't part ways, so maybe they didn't think it was all real, or they were just more concerned about the Union at that point, and that created a whole bunch of compromises so that they didn't have to separate because they were worried about the effects of separation, which would have been potential conquering, invasion, the British, the French were chomping at the bit to get the United States to peel it apart, Maybe that would have happened. They didn't have the resources to fight off those things as a state itself. This was an argument actually made in Virginia by Edmund Randolph. We don't have the resources to fight a war as Virginia. We need the other states. And if, we, if we're Virginia, we're going to be invaded by the British and we're gone. So we better keep this union together. Whatever it takes. I don't care if the Constitution stinks. We got to keep it together. And I think that's essentially what people were arguing at the time. But this concept of nationalism, which Kerry Roberts talks about, and the lecture, this is a transcription from the lecture. The lecture, by the way, you can get those audio lectures on our website. So if you want to listen to it, you can. But uh, the transcription of this is fantastic. 
um, because Carrie does a very good job. And of course, Carrie is one of Clyde Wilson's students as well as uh, myself. And um, he's a little bit, graduated a little bit before me from South Carolina. But he does a fantastic job here explaining the problem of nationalism and its cancerous uh, outcome for the United States. And that cancerous outcome, of course, was the rupture of the Union. You see, people look at it the other way. The breaking up of the Union. People look at the breaking up of the Union coming from states' rights. That was the thorn. Federalism was the thorn. Decentralization was the thorn on the side of good America. But at the end of the day, what really was happening is the nationalists were the burr under the saddle. The nationalists were the one who were pushing an agenda that was the antithesis of the original Constitution. The nationalists were the real problem in America. Almost from the beginning, and it was those who were against that that actually were talking about the real Constitution, the original Constitution. And so nationalism was really the cancer, not the other way around. And what happens, of course, with the war is that you get uh, in Lincoln and then the Civil War Amendments and the, most importantly, the 14th Amendment and how it's been interpreted, you get a radical transformation of America. This is exactly what Thad Stevens said in 1865. What we're doing is reconstruction. Reconstruction means recreating the United States. It's not anything else. It's not putting the Union back together. That Union's gone. He wanted it buried. That union's gone and buried. What we have now is something entirely new and different. And that new and different is going to be this new national government that's going to have uh, complete power over just about everything you can think of. And if it has to be done by the sword, it has to be done by the sword. Now, Stevens was willing to actually... He, he was Stevens is an interesting character. Stevens was willing to pardon those who were not the generals and political leaders of the South, and just say, look, they, they had to do what they had to do. They couldn't do otherwise, so we shouldn't punish them. We have to punish all these other people, but don't punish the common people in the South, the farmers, the artisans, the merchants. Don't do all that. Uh, they're just soldiers. Uh, punish those who are the true believers. And uh, But what he didn't realize is when you punish the true believers, you're punishing the entire section anyways. And so there's that. But regardless... Uh, this is the radical transformation. This is what Kerry's talking about with this nationalism. And so in that, as you get this new nationalism created, right, and as you get these people thinking about the American nation, well, this is where regionalism becomes a very interesting development. Drew Gilpin Faust's book, Confederate Nationalism, essentially says that uh, Confederate nationalism had to be created. The Southerners didn't think of themselves as consciously Southern before the war. This was something that the war created, and their only unifying thing, of course, was slavery. That was it. I mean, they were unified under slavery. I would argue it's otherwise. I mean, there were other things going on here. There were political economic arguments. There were constitutional arguments. Uh, Virginia, for example, their, their defense of the South was based on a constitutional argument. You can't invade a, a state, so we're going to go, right? And, of course, they said this is the slaveholding state. So, well, Virginia did say slavery, right? They talked about slavery, and even though you say they didn't, they did, but... Their real argument was, well, if you didn't invade the South, the slaveholding states, we wouldn't have left the Union. Um, it just wouldn't have happened. They're just identifying the states that are involved in this. But you sent the army in, right? So we're going to leave. This is illegal. It's illegal. So uh, you, you do have this identity being formed. And then because of this push for nationalism, you start seeing not just in the South, 
but you start seeing this this identity in other places. And I talked about that uh, this this past week on you know the pa- last week on the podcast. Um, I talked about it there, but you have people like you know Grant Wood in the Midwest. They start to look at themselves as Midwesterners, right? You're looking at Midwesterners, and then you have Southerners, and you have Westerners. And more importantly, not just this regional identity, but also an identity that comes down to occupation. You have farmers, and those farmers become populist. I have a colleague. Um, he said, "Look, you know, my, I, uh, I have uh, you know ancestors fought for the Confederacy, and when the war is over, they all became populists." Well, this makes sense because to them, this is a con. This is a conflict built on political power, economic power, and the Constitution. That's it. I mean, this is what it was built on. So you have to understand that regionalism develops because of nationalism, because people were resisting this top-down government coming from New England, which is where the this is what Charles Sumner had said was going to happen. We were going to have this top-down government from New England. We're going to make America New England again, and everything's going to be great and utopian. So nationalism fit that bill for them. It was actually northern sectionalism disguised as nationalism. And this is something you have to get when people start talking like Daniel Webster about nationalism. That's not what they're saying. They're saying, we want America to be New England. And if America's New England, then everything's going to be great. And Southerners are saying, wait a second here. No, no, no. New England stinks. We don't want to be New England. We want to be the South, right? And eventually Midwesterners say, no, 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 no. New England stinks. We don't want to be New England. We want to be, say, Minnesota, Right? This is tr- C.A. Lindbergh. It's what they're all doing. We don't want to be governed by a bunch of bankers in New York or a bunch of warmongers in Washington, D.C. We want to be Minnesota and love our lakes and our forests. That's why there's, there's, there's a piece that came out at uh, the Atlantic, the United States of Confederate America, and how it traced this uh, this Confederate love of the Confederacy through all these rural parts of, of the United States, not just in the South, but in Pennsylvania and in Michigan and in you know Seattle, Washington and places like that, Northern California, you might find these things. What's really happening there, it's not Confederate, uh, it's not Confederate symbols that they want, iconography, it's not that. What they really love is the Jeffersonian tradition of America. And that symbol, that Confederate flag, represents that more than anything else in current American history. The original 76 flag, you know, 13 stars, 13 stripes, you can say that represents real Jeffersonian America. But the Confederate flag represents that more. It's a flag of defiance and dissidence, and it represents that more than anything else. And this is why people like the South. Right? They, they come to look at it as, well, I mean, these are the people that held on to that longer than anybody else. It's why Lord Acton can sit back and say the South was the last vestige of real civilization in America. It's gone once the North takes over. All of it's gone. Right? And this is why H.L. Mencken could essentially say the same thing, even though he wrote that very famous or infamous piece, Sahara of the Beaux-Arts. What he's really talking about there is kind of a distortion of Southern culture. How it become much more leveling and that the real high-minded spirit of the Old South was being destroyed by this new kind of new wave of Southern politician, but he loved the old high-minded South. He thought it was a great example of real conservative Western civilization. So th- this piece by Kerry, you know, bridges into all this stuff. And then you got Sam Smith's great lecture from the last summer school on Southern religion. 
and this regional distinctiveness and you know how important that was in many different facets of life and that in that summer school we we did a couple of lectures on music and how important the south is for american music in fact almost all american music is really southern music or it came out of the south but it's a self-conscious regionalism and and sam smith gets into this in this great piece this great lecture on southern religion and i point out it's a lecture because it's on youtube free of charge so if you like the videos on YouTube, click on that little heart underneath, that little super thanks button, and click on this. Give us a few bucks, right, for watching the video. Um, that is, you know, something that, hey, you're, you're contributing to the Institute. Um, some people talk about the Amazon Smile. If you want to make Abbeville Institute your preferred 501c3 and Amazon Smile, you can do that. And when you shop at Amazon, which everybody does at one time or another, when you buy a book or you buy, uh, you know, some electronic or you buy whatever you buy at Amazon. You buy a tool or something there that you need. You are giving a little bit of money to the Institute because of that purchase. So another painless way, a free way for you, by the way. It's free. You're going to buy the stuff anyways. They just give us the money. Um, so it's a free way to help the Institute and our mission to explore what's true and valuable in the Southern tradition. And how vital that tradition is for the restoration of real America. I've said again many times on this podcast, the South is America. I used to say it a lot more several years ago, but it is true. And I think this piece in the, the United States of Confederate America really does point that out, that real America is that, right? It's this Jeffersonian vision of America. Uh, but we all know the tradition has its thorns. You don't tear down, you don't mow down the rose bush because it's got thorns. You enjoy the flowers. And so in that case, the South is that. It's a rose bush. And I think that's the best description of it. We all know that every tradition has its problems. We all know that the South had its own problems. But these are things that when you're looking at renewal of America, what it means, the Jeffersonian vision of America, uh, decentralization, community, family, faith, these are all Southern traits. Real culture, music, food. Uh, this is real culture. And... Uh, this regional identity is born, I think, in so many ways because of a reaction to nationalism. And so at the core of all of this is a, a reaction to what is nationalism, but really New England sectionalism. And so that's how we have to understand where we are in the South. And so you have, uh, uh, you know, that those great, those two pieces work really well together. And then, of course, you have Paul Yarbrough's piece, History Versus Lies. And he talks about history not as a science but as an art. And because it's an art, as he says in the beginning, which I really like the first part of this piece, he says, history is an art in a sense. That is not, it is not mathematically provable. The mathematician, he says, I am one, at least through some bit of graduate studies, must prove something logically. There are certain basic rules of logic, contrary to reflections from the squad at all. If you can't prove it, it simply means it's not provable, tr provable true, nor is it provable false. It may be either, but it is neither, absent a deterministic logical proof. Such problems wait to see if one may ever find a proof, such as the recently and famously proven Fermat's last theorem. Many, many today fall into the yet unknown true or false class. For those interested in an excellent book for the layman's most comprehension of one of the most famous problems is John Derbyshire's Prime Obsession, summarizing the, the Riemann hypothesis. The scientific method of proof, he says, different from the mathematical proof, is the 
in the physical sciences is proved by sampling and testing the point of producing such results in the laboratory. These are scientific method-determined proofs. Jonas Salk's polio vaccine work is an example of a proof by scientific method. Climate change study is an example of a crook. A crock of crap, right? So it's, uh, it's nothing. There's nothing provable about it. But the historian, he says, has no logical proof of his art since history is what it was. You cannot associate an abstract thought with a concrete fact of the past in order to change the fact. But this is exactly what liberals do. He says the quotation marks are a tweaking of the modern definition of liberal as opposed to the one accepted and true one, but another story for another day. So he's saying, look, history is an art, and it's the study of what it was, right? And more than that, and what we do at the Institute is try to understand the past, right? It's understanding the past. What is true and valuable in the Southern tradition? We try to understand the past. And I think that is clear. If you're a historian, you seek to understand. Not condemn, not censure. At times praise. You can censure if you would like or say that these people were wrong for what they believed. You can do that. I mean, there's nothing. This is, you know, Livy had said this a long time ago, 2,000 years ago when he's writing histories. Uh, the history, study of history is the best medicine for a sick mind, for in history of the infinite variety of human experience plainly set out for all to see. And in that study, you can find for yourself fine things, examples, base things, rotten through and through to avoid. I mean, that's his quote. So you can, you can say we have these great examples and we have these things that we want to avoid, right? Not necessarily to condemn, because condemning is it's moral relativism, it's presentism, but to say we don't want to do that again. And you can praise the things that you think are valuable in that. Well, this is what we do. We can say we don't want to do slavery again in the United States. That's not a valuable thing in the Southern tradition at all. If it was the Southern tradition at any, it was the American tradition. But we're not going to do that again. What we are going to do is love the Jeffersonian part of this. We're going to love the South. We're going to love the culture. We're going to love the music. We're going to love the food. We love the people and the religion and the communities. We're going to love the political tradition. We're going to love what the South represents for America. And that's what we're going to love. And I, I said in a fundraising letter that I put out a couple of weeks ago, you know, say it loud, say it proud. You know, say it, you're South, you're Southern, you're proud. Say it loud, you're Southern, you're proud, right? This is a positive affirmation of the South. What we try to do is positive. Now, not all the pieces that we publish at the Institute are positive. Some of them are negative and that looking at what other people are saying about the South. But the positive affirmation is something that's very important. You have to be positive about the Southern tradition because there's so many people out there that are negative about it. And it's because they've been told over and over again, there's nothing good about the South. It's a basket of deplorables. It's the, the United States of Confederate America. Look how bad all this stuff is. But if you are someone who is a Jeffersonian, look at that piece and say, this sounds great to me. Right? So why is it bad? Well, because it's uneducated. It doesn't fit with the New England aspect of education. And it's economically backward. These are poor, stupid people. Not just that, poor, stupid white people that don't... I mean, this is, this is the problem. Um, so those people are just deplorables. You can't do anything with them. Maybe there's something else to it. Maybe these are good things that they're talking about. Maybe this, this idea of you know, decentralization individual liberty and uh, self-determination and all that stuff, which was very Jeffersonian, is good for America. Maybe having a, a, a nation or a, a section of independent farmers as the 
12 you know, Southern agrarians talked about, the 12 Southerners. Maybe that's a good thing. Maybe this opposition to the centralized capitalist state is a good thing. Maybe we've gone, we don't really rationally think about these things anymore because we say history is as it is, right? We had this transformation and it happened. And so we can look back at it and say, well, I mean, was it really beneficial long term as we start looking? I mean, are there bad things that came out of that to avoid, not to condemn, not to censure, but to avoid? Should we avoid doing this again? Because this didn't turn out the way that people talked about it. Or should we not? Right? Should we praise these things? But I think people just have a knee-jerk reaction. Well, this is good. It's good because it's the United States. It just is what it is, right? It's good. And in some ways, you can say that, you know, that's what Yarbrough is saying you do with history, but uh, there has to be a positive affirmation of the good and the true and the valuable in that tradition. Again, I hope this podcast does that. I hope the website we produce do, does that. I hope that the conferences we do do that. They have a positive affirmation. You know, Our conference on Robert E. Lee was all about the real Robert E. Lee and the good Robert E. Lee, because all you get now is Robert E. Lee was a trader and a slave owner and a and uh, you know just a horrible guy, right? I mean, he's, he wasn't good at any. He terrible general. So that's all. That's all a revision of what Robert E. Lee really is. And this positive affirmation uh, is found in the last piece of the week, and it's entitled "Driving Through Maryland." We have these driving. This is part three. I, I we we put part one and part two because it's been a while since we had these. It's pre-pandemic, right? Pre-COVID, uh, we had these uh, tours uh, that Brett Moffitt would talk about things to do in various southern states, and he's been focusing on Maryland for a couple of pieces, and so this is the third part of it, last part. He said he's going to do some other things. He's going to uh, go out and uh, look at some other states. But this is to find the good and the valuable and the true in these states to go find the beauty in all of these states. You know, the South is a beautiful place. There's lots of beautiful things to see. And of course, a tremendous amount of history. We often think that, you know, well, I want to go, people think, no, not anyone, this is podcast, I'm sure, but I want to go to Boston, right? Because I want to see some real American history. It's where all the patriots were. <laughs> There's plenty of that in the South. You want, you want American war for independence? It's all over the South. Uh, all over. And uh, we forget that, right? I mean, these were Southerners fighting. This was Washington, right? He's a Southerner, and he wouldn't have been Washington without Virginia. And you have a whole bunch of other Southerners who were same thing, right? Very proud of being from the South and uh, very proud of being Southerner. You know, I love it that Mel Gibson made a movie, The Patriot, about the South. It wasn't about some Massachusetts Yankee out there fighting for independence. You know, it was about Southerners doing this good work. And so this is why these little pieces of positive affirmation of the South, positive affirmation of Southern history and the Southern tradition are very important. It's why we do little things like, uh, you know, have pieces on music and food. This isn't actually the last piece. There's one more piece I want to talk about, too. I didn't mention it yet, and I meant to. And or Southern literature, which is a positive affirmation to find humor in things and to find humor in the South. And so this is a very short piece. And I, I want to read it. It's by Brandon Meeks. He does such a fun job for us uh, when he writes these little pieces. And the title is Good Directions. And so <laughs> let me read this. He says, the fellow that runs the local feed store is a Cajun from Villa Platte, Louisiana. 
He moved up here to Arkansas because the woman he met in the personal ads said she could abide thickets and pine trees but would not tolerate bayous or raising a coon-ass baby. I stopped by the store yesterday because I needed some laying pellets for my chickens. They've only been ornery and have to be have taken to squatting to no purpose. When I got to the counter to buy the chicken feed and some of that uh, pastel taffy they keep by the register, the Cajun was giving directions to a bewildered insurance man. Can you tell me where I can find Maximilian Fontenot? Or Fontenot, I should say. Maximilian Fontenot. I believe so. Max Fontenot? Yes, he has a claim on an auto accident and I need to see the damage. Mm-hmm. I know about it. Can you tell me where he lives? I can tell you, but he ain't home, no. That's fine. I will wait. Let's see. He don't live uptown, no. He stay out west of here. You go about two mile back toward the river and pay attention because you, because them side roads covered up with brush and easy to miss. Which road am I looking for? You're looking for the road that he stay on, no? Yes. There be a yellow house on the left past a lapitation gas station and, excuse me, what kind of gas station? Be an old lapitation station. Roof falling down. Vines cutting through it. Oh, dilapidated. That's what I said, no? So I look for a yellow house over the vacant gas station. Then what? I don't say it be vacant, no. That's what a man, that's a man what stays there. Well, I go past it and look for a yellow house anyways. Fontenot don't stay in the yellow house, no. You look for the road past that. Okay, so the first road on the left, past the yellow house and past the old gas station. That maximum Fontenot Road, yeah? Thank you. Hold on. That instruction don't all the way right. Fontenot live among some houses once you turn left off the big road. Which house would that be? Let's see. The tree or two house out front. You gotta bought yourself around behind them and look for the house with the china ball tree. What's the china ball tree look like? How you mean to find a man that you don't know what a china ball tree? I'm unfamiliar with that kind of tree. Is there any other marker that would tell me what that was Fontenot's house? Hmm, don't know about that. But it'd be the only house back there. Thank you, I think I can find him. I doubt that. Why's that? You specify you're looking for Max Fontenot? Yes. I've been told you ain't home, no? Any idea where he might be? I spec I do know we. I'm Max Fontenot. What you want? <laughs> so good. So Max Fontenot told the guy where to find his house, but he's standing right in front of him. Fantastic story. And all of this stuff is, again, what makes the South fun. Right? Here's Max Fontenot having a little fun with the insurance guy. Um... Just fantastic. So this is, uh, this is why the South is so important to the cultural continuity and security of America and the future of America. And it wouldn't, America wouldn't be as fun without it. All right. Until next time, good day.